everyone is describing as timely, Hulu's terrific adaptation of Margaret Atwood's terrifying novel, The Handmaid's Tale. But with a story as insightful of the human condition as Atwood's, there is only one time to tell it. And that time is now. Which means always. In the near future, an environmental catastrophe has resulted in a dramatic decrease in human fertility. With the future uncertain, a lot of people have reached out to an even greater uncertainty and embraced religion. A coup has taken place in America and the religious right have seized control, turning the country into a theocratic state they have renamed Gilead. All of this takes place before the very first scene of the show. Reed Morano directed the first three episodes of the series, and here she is speaking at the Hollywood Reporter TV Talks public interview, hosted by Tatiana Ziedel. In America, we tend to be a little bit sheltered because of the rights that we do have and um, what we've all been used to. And uh, so initially for me, it was an interesting story to take on because I thought, well, maybe it'll make people really appreciate what they have. And I think now it seems more timely because there are things happening that are hitting a little bit more close to home on a daily basis. And the whole you know, message that Margaret was sending with the book is that big changes like this don't happen overnight. They happen very slowly over time, almost so that you don't know that they're happening until it's too late. Initially, Morana was invited to pitch for just the first episode, but so detailed was her vision that the series showrunner, Bruce Miller, decided she should direct the first three. That means Morana's creative vision serves as the template for the entire series. Morana won the producers around by presenting a lookbook that ran to 70 pages, laying out in fastidious detail the character analysis, colour palette, sound pattern, music list, lens choice, lighting scheme, production design, and above all, the emotional fabric she felt was imperative in defining the show's underlying tone. A chair, a table, a lamp. There's a window with white curtains, and the glass is shatterproof, but it isn't running away they're afraid of. A handmaid wouldn't get far. It's those other escapes, the ones you can open in yourself, given a cutting edge. Or a twisted sheet in a chandelier. Initially, the underlying tone is one of unbearable dread. That dread is established as early as the second sequence, when Morano shows us a woman alone in a bedroom. She is Offred, the handmaiden of the title, played with searing precision by Elizabeth Moss. More than alone in the bedroom, Offred feels utterly abandoned. What we get is a heavy atmosphere of terrifying isolation. Offred is being held as prisoner in the house of a couple who cannot have children. Offred is there to be impregnated by the master of the house, Commander Waterford. On a monthly basis, and in the company of Mrs Waterford, Offred is ritualistically raped by the commander, but she has no recourse for justice because the new religious laws written by the commander, regard such sexual acts as sacrosanct. Yet, while Offred is certainly not the only woman subject to the barbarity, her movements and conversations are so severely restricted, they only reinforce her sense of feeling utterly abandoned and terribly alone. We go everywhere in twos. Supposed to be for our protection, for companionship. It's bullshit. There are no friends here. Can't be. The truth 
as we're watching each other. She's my spy, and I'm hers. In setting down the template for the series, Murano has done in cinematic terms what Atwood did in literary terms. Just as Atwood encrypted her plot with historical facts, so too does Murano drape the series with incredible visual and sonic textures. And it is those textures that move the initial emotional tone of dread just far enough to make the story bearable. Someone is watching. Here. Someone is always watching. Nothing can change. It all has to look the same. Because I intend to survive. For her. Her name is Hannah. My husband was Luke. My name is June. Marana began her career as a cinematographer, and so early was her talent recognised that she is one of the youngest ever admitted to the American Society of Cinematographers. But it is obvious that Marano's gifts extend far beyond lighting, lensing and framing. Yes, she drew the look from Stanley Kubrick's films, most obviously A Clockwork Orange and Full Metal Jacket. Are you going to attend to the divine word and realise the punishments that await unrepentant sinners in the next world as well as this? I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. From now on you will speak only when spoken to. But beyond Kubrick's inclination towards visual symmetry and strong backlighting, if you listen carefully to Morano's three episodes, you will notice a distinct lack of background sounds. There is no hum of distant traffic, no reverb of a thriving metropolis. There are no airplanes, helicopters, trains, public transport systems in operation. It is more than very quiet. It is suffocatingly so. And instead of that expected sound blanket of engines and machinery, there comes birdsong. Which is quite ironic, because birds have only returned to the big city because of the new policy drawn up by the environmentally friendly totalitarian state. So, deleting the expected urban noise and replacing it with the sounds of birds offers audiences a sense that although the story appears to be drenched in dread, it is actually cloaked in hope. Words. It's Latin, I think. Someone wrote it, in here, where no one would ever see it. Was it Alfred, the one who was here before? It's a message, for me. Margaret Atwood has been a pains to point out that the story is not science fiction. Nothing in the story is physically implausible. There are no extraterrestrials or time-traveling spacemen. Instead, Everything in the story has already happened at some point in our collective histories. Rather, Atwood describes her story as speculative fiction. Here she is in 2015, talking with Patty Satalia of Penn State Public Broadcasting about how she infused several literary traditions into her novel. Well, there are three big wellsprings of motifs in Western literature. Uh, Greek and Roman literature and mythology is one of them. Um, folk tale, you know, Grimm's fairy tale, we all know who Cinderella is, uh, and the Bible. It being Canada, we had it in school. We didn't have the separation of church and state, I and mean, then we had it every day. 
so of course I know it. Uh, religion can be a positive faith that helps and encourages people and comforts them in time of trouble, or it can be used by those who want more power for themselves. I'm a, I'm a hardcore agnostic. It means you shouldn't proclaim as knowledge something that is actually faith. So let's, let's just say some things are matters of faith and other things are matters of knowledge. You can prove them. So you shouldn't confuse the one with the other. But for me, the TV adaptation belongs to another genre, and that is horror. Each episode unfurls a more deeply embedded nightmare, which on paper at least, would make you think that each installment gets worse, to the point of being completely unbearable. But here is what lets us know there is hope. Morana provides a startling number of extreme close-ups of Offred, and she puts us so close to our heroine, we see her eyes quiver and her lips tremble, we hear her breathing, and so we feel what she feels. But while the proximity puts us inside Offred's head, it is how Morano fills the rest of the frame that puts us inside Offred's heart. Morano surrounds our heroine with volumetric light. She puts dust or smoke or steam in the air, and that allows us to literally and figuratively see the light. Which is why I keep saying that the story is cloaked in hope. There's a way to help them. You can join us. What do you mean, us? There's a network. I don't know. I'm, I'm not that kind of person. No one is until they have to be. Waterford is important. He's very high up. You should find out and tell us. Find out what? Find out anything. Don't say a word. Of course I won't. There isn't us. There are a lot of traps in translating Atwood's novel. The book comes in a first-person narrative, which not only means that it is all very internalised, but also means that we only know what Offred tells us. And given that Gilead is so hellishly secretive, what Offred knows is very little. So the challenge for the TV series showrunner Bruce Miller was to figure out how to move beyond Offred's sequestered space to show how the rest of Gilead operates. Back in 1990, director Volker Schlondorf and screenwriter Harold Pinter tried to adapt Atwood's novel to the screen. In doing so, they decided not to use a voiceover narration. That's understandable, because normally a narrator's position distances us from them. They know more about their narrative world than we do, and thus we hold them above us. But the way Miller and his fellow writers dealt with the problem was to use the voiceover not to explain the world of Gilead, but to give us access to Offred's thoughts. Which is crucial, because, however isolated Offred is, no matter how abandoned and despondent she may feel, the fact that we can hear her voice means that she is not alone. There was an Offred before me. She helped me find my way out. She's dead. She's alive. She is me. We are handmaids. Davis, Stardust, Carver, and Doran, bitches. 
In a dictatorship, it is quite common for punishment to be publicly and regularly displayed. And the way the dictatorship secures the obedience of its citizens is to recruit some of those same citizens to carry out its brutal punishments. Which is why the handmaidens are regularly summoned to salvagings. At these events, the handmaidens are called forward to beat a man to death, a man whom they are told is guilty of rape. On the face of it, salvagings offer handmaidens an opportunity to vent their anger and sense of injustice. But even though these same handmaidens are raped on a monthly basis, they know they can never bring their attackers to justice. So it appears the salvagings are to get the handmaidens to redirect their anger and quest for justice. But what is really happening is that the salvagings are a means by which the state involves the handmaidens in the tyranny. They become tools of state oppression and it obviously places them in deep conflict with themselves. Here is Bruce Miller giving another reason why he opted for the voiceover. The closest relationship and the biggest conflict is between June and Offred. Offred is pushing compliance while June is pushing rebellion and trying to live even while you're trying to survive. Such internal conflict put me immediately in mind of another film about oppression, Steve McQueen's 12 Years a Slave. You make no sounds, but will you ever let them go in your heart? They are as my flesh. Then who is distressed? Do I upset the master and the mistress? Do you care less about my loss than, than their well-being? Master Ford is a decent man. He is a slaver. Under the circumstances. Under the circumstances, he's a slaver. But you truckle at his boot. No. You luxuriate in his face. I survive. I will not fall into despair. I will offer up my talents to Master Ford. I will keep myself hardy till freedom is opportune. Oh, Ford, is your opportunity? You think he does not know that you are more than you suggest, but he does nothing for you, nothing. You are no better than prized livestock. Call for him. Call, tell him of your previous circumstances and see what it earns you something. On the surface, society in Gilead seems prosperous. We don't see any poverty, the streets are clean, the air is clear, water fresh and food nutritious. There seems to be no homeless and the homes that we do see are all expensively furnished. But it is all a deception. Although the handmaidens go out to buy all the groceries for the homes, they never carry cash, but instead are provided with tokens that can only be redeemed at the local stores. It is an extension of what happened before the theocratic coup, when suddenly all bank accounts held by women were frozen by the authorities. Here is Bruce Miller once more talking about another form of theft. We, we did look at the, the way that the Nazis took over the houses of the people that they uh, kicked out of any society. Also, the, there's a lot of stuff in the, in the house that's looted. Um, all the pictures on the wall in the Waterford house are pictures from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. They're sucking off the, off the bigger economy that came before. Uh, there's no computers, there's no TVs, there's a lot of things, expensive things that they don't have so that they, they have uh, money left over for this kind of opulence. We have seen similar theft already this century, when in the wake of the crash of 2008, the working and middle classes were burdened with bailing out state banks, corporate giants and billionaire bondholders. So perhaps it is not just the religious right we should be wary of. As things are, 
with neoliberalism morphing into an ever more ossified extreme conservatism that sets aside ever greater tax cuts for the super rich, we are moving away from democracy and into plutocracy. And if the 1% get their way, the rest of us will all be handmaidens. Big changes like this don't happen overnight. They happen very slowly over time, almost so that you don't know that they're happening until it's too late.